Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories this week, controversy continues to follow NFL wide receiver Antonio Brown. After being dropped by the Oakland Raiders and having a difficult offseason with them, he was picked up by the New England Patriots, but now he's facing allegations that he raped a former trainer. The NFL is considering a range of options, including putting Brown on the commissioner's exempt list, which could make him ineligible to play. For more on the story, we spoke to Neil Greenberg. He's a sports reporter at The Washington Post. Pretty much a day after he was signed by the New England Patriots, a civil lawsuit was filed in Southern District of Florida, where Antonio Brown was accused of exploitation, sexual assault, and rape. The plaintiff is a 28-year-old former trainer of his who uh, says, alleges Brown sexually assaulted her on three occasions. And now it's uh, a he said, she said situation. Brown, through his lawyers, has denied the allegations. His lawyers even calling it a, quote, a money grab. Right. But now we're, we're in a situation where the NFL is probably going to take action. The Washington Post, Mark Maskey reported that the NFL is giving serious consideration to putting Brown on the commissioner exempt list. That would essentially put Brown on temporary paid leave while the league completes their investigations into the accusations. While on the list, Brown would not be able to practice with the Patriots or play in any games. And, you know, like you said, he showed up at practice today. He is allowed to practice with the team. But it looks like the next step we're going to get is him being put on the exempt list. And I think that's going to be accelerated a little bit because the Pennsylvania district attorney came out earlier today and said they're going to look into the allegations as well. So right now it's a civil matter, but with the district attorney looking into it, it could end up being a criminal matter as well. What else is Antonio Brown's team saying? Because I know his lawyer said that obviously you mentioned that they think it's a money grab, but they are saying that they did have a consensual sexual relationship. That is um, Antonio Brown's defense right now, that it was consensual. Obviously, the former trainer has a much different view. And the Patriots aren't saying anything other than we're aware of the situation and we're going to pretty much leave it up to the NFL to make a decision from here. He was practicing with the team, as I said earlier. So for them, in terms of the player reporting to camp and going through the paces as you would expect the player with the new team, that's all taking place right now. But the NFL doesn't really need much to find that um, Brown has violated the policy, which includes assault and battery, including sexual assault or other sex offenses. So they only need credible evidence to establish that he violated the policy. The league is always under a lot of pressure to react to these things very quickly. They don't have the best track record when it comes to handling these types of issues. And they've been accused multiple times of not getting it right. So once again, they're put in this situation where if they don't handle this investigation right, if they don't take quick enough action, it looks bad for them also. And I think some people think that the policy is not consistently enforced. You look at Ezekiel Elliott, he was suspended six games in 2017 for domestic violence-related conduct despite his denial and questions about evidence. 
This year, Chiefs wide receiver Tyreek Hill was not disciplined by the NFL, despite uh, a verbal warning aimed at his fiance that could have been considered a violation of the policy. I mean, there are some instances where, you know, the NFL has not taken action when you thought that they would. But this certainly seems to be a situation that the accusations are obviously heinous. So it's something that uh, is going to be looked at pretty strongly. My guess, and this is just my own personal guess, I think that he does end up on the commissioner exemplist. And that means that, you know, he's he's pretty much going to be on paid leave. And, you know, if at the conclusion of that, they find that Brown violated the policy, then the minimum suspension is six games without pay. But, you know, the commissioner's exemplist is an option for the NFL to get in a wait and see approach. And I think that for the league, there's no downside in doing that as they start to investigate the allegations. And in the meantime, Brown's accuser, she said that she is open to meeting with the NFL and any other agencies that are going to be investigating to look into these uh, three separate instances that she said where he uh, either raped or assaulted her. And these were all done uh, either at his home or in Florida as well. But there were, as I said, just three different occasions where they did meet. The other flip side of it is that Antonio Brown's team is saying that she came up to him with some type of uh, business deal or business investment that he didn't want to get involved in. And then this is why these allegations have come out since. Neil Greenberg, sports reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Another big story playing out nationwide. You're hearing a lot of headlines about vaping-related illnesses and deaths. The CDC is looking into a bunch of illnesses in younger people who all reported vaping nicotine or marijuana products in the months before they got severely sick. But now the FDA is cracking down on Juul, one of the top e-cigarette companies. The FDA has said that Juul has ignored the law because it marketed its products as less harmful than cigarettes without FDA approval. For more on this story, we spoke to Marisa Fernandez, a reporter at Axios, about this big vape crackdown. The FDA has been going back and forth against Juul for what seems like over a year now. So it was this time last year, pretty close to it, that the FDA had launched an investigation on Juul's marketing practices and if it had any relation into what we now call an e-cigarette epidemic among teenagers and youths, right? So Monday, the FDA sent a warning letter to Juul, basically just like threatening with fines or, you know, product seizure for misleading marketing its vaping technology, which has been a huge criticism when it comes to flavor pods and things that would attract younger consumers, like flavors like tutti frutti, lemon, grape, you know, strawberry, all these kinds of different flavors that wouldn't necessarily appeal to maybe adults. And one of the big focuses right now, too, is obviously a lot of vaping products are billed as a way to get away from smoking cigarettes. And in a lot of the ads for Juul, they say you got to make the switch. It's better for you than smoking regular tobacco products. And that's the other thing that the FDA is hitting Juul on is saying, well, you haven't gone through the proper testing. You haven't gotten clearance from the FDA to actually say that. So you have to stop in the meantime. There are studies out there that prove that vaping is better than a traditional cigarette, right? 
But what the acting FDA commissioner is saying is that Jewel didn't go through the proper channels in its ability to advertise in that way. So a lot of this is asking the question if Jewel had misled consumers and if they should have done a better job of warning people that vaping is an e-cigarette and e-cigarettes contain nicotine, which is very addictive. And vaping nicotine is vastly different than smoking a traditional cigarette. We were taught from the 21st century and late 20th century that Smoking causes coughing, wheezing, phlegm, and the technology of vaping is so different from that. And teens don't have those obvious symptoms. So there's a disconnect there that they're doing something to their body that may be harmful. And so the bottom line is that health officials are coming out and speaking out, and they're really concerned on these long-term effects, which is people ingesting more nicotine than they would with traditional cigarettes. And that addiction is in teenagers are showing sign of nicotine toxicity and respiratory problems. That really leads us right into the discussion we're having now with all of these vaping illnesses. From the traditional cigarettes, obviously all these cancer-causing byproducts of burning tobacco, we're not getting that in this aerosol form with these e-cigarettes, but there hasn't been enough long-term research into the effects of vaping. And as these other chemicals are put in there, I know the flavoring was a big thing. People are buying bootleg jewel products and other vape products. You don't know what's in it, and we don't know what these chemicals are doing to your lungs when it goes in there. And just speaking about how the increased usage in schools are, there was a hearing last month, I think, the FDA was hearing testimony, and they they had two high school students recount a story saying, you know, Jewel came to the school and told us it was a lot safer, and the FDA at any moment is going to say it's safer than cigarettes. And this is exactly what they're trying to put the brakes on. It's like none of this has happened. You guys are deceptively marketing all of this stuff. When the FDA last September came out with its report about e-cigarettes and how it has such a big influence on minors, pretty much showing that 77% of high schoolers have used e-cigarettes at some point, right? And the inhale of vape or Juul per se, for the sake of the argument, it is inhaled so smoothly that you don't really realize that it's an e-cigarette and there's like a real lack of communication there. So Jewel has um, till September 24th to respond to the FDA. It already has said that it's going to fully cooperate. And we're going to see what kind of information the FDA has to share with us. Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The last story for this week has to be my favorite story because it has to do with spies. The CIA had an informant that had to be extracted from Russia and is now presumed to be living in the Washington, D.C. area. This informant had been sending secrets to the U.S. for decades and was instrumental in providing intelligence that Vladimir Putin had personally ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the presidential election. For more on the story, we spoke to Adam Ronsley. He's a reporter for The Daily Beast. Uh, One of the interesting parts about this story also is that we're getting word of where this person might be living in the U.S. The Daily Beast even sent out a reporter to go and visit this house. When the reporter got there, all they were greeted with was suspicious men pulling up in an SUV, large security dogs, and a neighborhood that really didn't know much about these people that lived there. We're going to talk to Adam a little bit more about what we know about this spy And then also what to expect when you defect from a country. So CNN first broke the story that tied 
really the biography of this spy together in terms of his relationship with the U.S. intelligence. But we had had hints ever since the 2016 election interference from Russia that the CIA did have a top spy somewhere in Russia. Because if you go back to the New York Times, you can see a sentence here, a sentence there, where there's reference that the CIA had someone who was telling them what Putin was thinking, what he was hoping for as part of the goal of election interference. And then earlier this week, CNN reported that that spy was exfiltrated from Russia in 2017 because of growing fears about his security. There's a bit of a debate about exactly what they were afraid of in terms of security. CNN highlighted the fact that uh, Trump had a penchant to blurt out things in meetings with Russians. He blurted out some very sensitive ISIS intelligence in May of 2017, shortly before the spy was extricated. But as you can tell from the reporting prior to CNN's story, there were a lot of questions being pressed to the CIA. There was a report of a top spy. And I think the thinking was, at least among some people, is that Russia might start a mole hunt and try and figure out what's behind all these U.S. stories. Either way, the U.S. got him out in 2017. A lot of people were pointing to the intense media scrutiny over this, as you said, and then could prompt Russia to go for this mole hunt and then maybe find out who he was. Now, they say that this uh, person wasn't directly inside Mr. Putin's inner circle, but did see him regularly and had access to high-level Kremlin decision-making. The Kremlin, for their part now, is on overdrive trying to paint this guy as a boozy nobody, somebody that liked to drink, really didn't have access to Vladimir Putin and didn't see him or interact with him at all, basically. The person the Russians are referring to is we have not confirmed who the identity is of the Russian official who the CIA says they recruited. What happened was earlier this week, the same day the CNN story hit, Russian media started recirculating a 2017 tabloid story about a Russian official who disappeared from Russia in 2017 during a vacation to Montenegro. That official was reportedly a diplomat in the United States, posted at the Russian embassy in the U.S., and then worked in the Russian presidential administration. That official went on a vacation to Montenegro and had not been seen since. Russia, according to the tabloid article, opened up a criminal case. That official was married to a woman who was also previously married. It's a little bit complicated, but basically his stepson's biological father has since come forward today to say, yes, my wife, who now lives with this or who you know married this official, took my kid away during a vacation to Montenegro, and I haven't seen them since. The Russian government has come out, Putin's spokesman has come out, and the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, have come out and said that the official mentioned in this tabloid report did not have direct access to Putin, which I don't think was actually really alleged by the New York Times or CNN, only that he had access to information about what Putin was saying, and that he was a drinker and that he was a nobody. The former KGB handler of Robert Hansen, who was an FBI spy, gave an interview today. It was translated by Medusa, which is a really good translation outlet, doubting that this individual could have been a spy as described by the New York Times. The Russians are very much trying to say that, no, 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 we didn't have a spy. We don't have any spy problem. <laughs> right. This individual was drunk. He was not senior, yada, yada, yada. But that individual has not popped up to clear the record. I mean, you said it's a complicated story, but what spy story is it really, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's what makes this stuff so interesting. And, you know, as far as reporting goes, this CIA informant was providing secrets to the U.S. for decades. They cultivated yeah. him to kind of grow within the ranks there. 
the, it was a recruitment in place, basically, is that the ideal situation is not for you to hop out and come to the United States because then your access to secret ends. The ideal thing yeah. is to have someone in place a long time who can pass you things, who can give you information over time. And one of the things that CIA officials have reportedly complained about to places like the New York Times and CNN is that a source like this does not grow on trees. In the world of intelligence, you don't have a thousand people who surround Putin and who get access to what he's thinking and what he's telling people on a daily basis. The loss of someone like this is blinding. And it's going to be very, very hard to try and find another person, particularly because uh, they're going to be that much more cautious. Yeah. And, and it's really important, the type of information that he was providing, too, because for a long time, our intelligence officials have been saying that Russia was operating on an influence campaign in 2016. They're saying that Mr. Putin personally ordered this influence campaign. And a lot of this was resting off of this informants information. If that's not true, then that kind of blows all the intelligence out of the water. So the importance of how accurate this stuff was and whether he was a spy for us is, is really important. And there was some concerns because when they said, hey, you got to come out now, apparently he resisted for family reasons. And that's not terribly unheard of. Put yourself in that situation. Do you want to leave your country and then go to another country where you can't see your extended family, where maybe you don't know if you're going to be able to bring your immediate family, where you have to live in fear for the rest of your life? Because we know the Russians have a nasty habit of tracking down former defectors even after they've left and attempting to, or in some cases, actually assassinating them. And so his hesitance to defect and leave the country led a lot of folks to wonder if maybe he had been feeding them some junk, if he was a double agent, if he was secretly being run by the Russians or had been turned. But, you know, the family issues are not terribly unheard of. We've seen that before. The CIA recruited an Iranian scientist, Karam Amiri, he was a nuclear scientist, and they got him out of Iran during a pilgrimage to Mecca, and they brought him to Arizona, and they gave him $5 million, which is, you know, a, a not bad little nest egg there. And he really missed his family because they couldn't get his family to go out with him. And he reportedly was calling his son all the time. And as a result, he ended up redefecting and going back, and he ended up being hung by the Iranian government. I think he thought that claiming to have been kidnapped by the CIA would get him some mercy. But the same thing happened with KGB colonel in the 1980s, Lady Yurchenko, who was KGB colonel who came over in Rome. We brought him back to the U.S. He'd been having an affair with a KGB secretary and wanted her to come live with him in his new life in America. But when he asked her to come with him, she didn't want to go. And he ended up redefecting as well. So it's not terribly unheard of yeah. that you would have family issues and, you know, your family being a pull and making you not want to defect. But And it makes total sense. I mean, whether you're a spy or not, you are in these areas for years and years and years. You put down roots. You get a sense of normalcy outside of the official job. And yeah, yeah. I mean, that's hard to let go. And it's a big adjustment. It's And it's not, you know, it's not just something with Russians. We see this in North Korea. You have defectors come over all the time into South Korea. They have trouble adjusting to the new way of life. And there's an entire office of the CIA that handles these issues, that deals with the psychology of resettlement. And when do you broach the issue of money? Because you don't want it to seem too transactional. You want to show your appreciation for them, but you don't want to make them feel like a cheap mercenary. It's very complicated and adjustment is very difficult, as you might imagine. Adam Ronsley, reporter for The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.